Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper from the uh, Pratt Library. I'm the coordinator of public programs, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon uh, for this Writer's Life event. We're happy to present this program this afternoon with uh, one of our longtime partners, City Lit Project, and also with uh, the Ivy Bookstore, who is um, selling um, Adinam and Gestu's book this afternoon. And here to introduce our guest is Greg Wilhelm from City Lit Project. Good afternoon. Thank you, Judy. Let's just take care. I just, <laughs> I just heard someone's phone go off, and I had my phone in my hand to remind myself. To, uh, I think that's why they get people to introduce authors, is simply to tell people to turn off their cell phone. So I will double-check mine so I don't embarrass myself. Um, I want to thank the Pratt Library for inviting City Lit Project to uh, co-present this, uh, the, the secret reading this afternoon. And again, thank the Ivy Bookstore for supplying uh, sales support. So after the reading, of course, books will be available for sale and signing. Danau Mengesto's first novel, The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears, was translated into more than a dozen languages and it garnered awards from around the world including a 5 under 35 award from the National Book Foundation. In June, he appeared in the New Yorker's 20 under 40 issue. I'm sensing a theme here. I dare say that if there are such literary lists as 50 at 50 or 80 over 80, 8 over 80, you will see Danau included there in the future. In How to Read the Air, Danau tells a rich story of two generations of an African immigrant family and the America in which they seek to make their home. Danau has drawn from his own background as an Ethiopian immigrant. He was born in Addis Ababa in 1978, and his family moved to Illinois two years later. To weave a quietly lyrical story of identity, love, revolution, and reconciliation. At its core, however, How to Read the Air explores how we all deal with histories that aren't ours, but they are, that are inherited from the family who came before us. Danau earned his MFA in fiction from Columbia University. He received a fellowship in fiction from the New York Foundation for the Arts. He's also a journalist, which I, I quite think is interesting. And his writing, uh, in particular about the war in Darfur and northern Uganda, has appeared in Rolling Stone, Harper's, and the Wall Street Journal. After living for several years in New York, he and his family now live in Paris. And I'm glad to welcome his family and their adorable 14-month-old here as well. Danau's first two novels emerged from his own Ethiopian and Ethiopian-American experiences. And I completely agree with the very last line of the review that appeared in the New York Times on how to read the air. Quote, now that the remarkably talented Mengistu has successfully explored these ideas in two books. One looks forward excitedly to watching the author's gaze expand to the world beyond his own experience. And I do look forward to that third book, which I understand is in the process. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Danau Mengestu. Good afternoon. Um, thank you all very much for, for coming out on a uh, actually very beautiful Sunday. Um, I'm not sure that I would be able to say that I would make it to a reading on a beautiful Sunday afternoon, um, but I'm delighted to know that other people uh, are better 
and more committed than I am. Um, thank you very much uh, for the Pratt Library for, for hosting me. Um, I'm going to begin by doing a, and oh, by the way, if you hear a yeah, 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 that's my son disagreeing with whatever I say. He oftentimes does not like my particular perspective on things, so just humor him. I'm going to be reading, uh, I'm going to begin with a small reading from my second novel, How to Read the Air. And the, the novel is narrated by um, an American-born Ethiopian um, named Jonas Wildemariam, who is, um, through part of the novel, is going, making this journey from Peoria, Illinois, to Nashville, Tennessee. And it's a trip that his parents made 30 years earlier, just before he was born. And he decides one day after watching his life slowly collapse around him that he himself needs to take the same journey that his parents made after they arrived from Ethiopia um, in order to try to see the world through their eyes. And it's his way of trying to recreate this failed honeymoon that his parents made as a way of trying to understand exactly who this couple was and how they came to be the people that they were. And so it's, it's very much an act of imagination and it's very much an act of memory um, and also I think a way of kind of trying to redeem um, this couple who for him were always mysterious and un, slightly unknown characters. So I'm going to read from a, a, a passage that takes place early in the novel where um, the narrator is imagining his parents as they're, as they're driving. Up ahead, a sign offering a room for twenty nine ninety nine per night loomed, came, and then went. It was 3.30 in the afternoon on a Wednesday, and they were only 20 miles outside of the city, which meant that they were still only 143 miles away from the fort Jean-Patrice Leconte had built in 1687 when first settling Illinois for the French. The remains of Leconte's fort were historical landmark number one along the road to Nashville, and with the exception of a potential detour to Springfield to see Lincoln's home, were at the top of my father's lists of the important places in history he wanted to see on this trip. He had made a list of at least a dozen such places that he planned to someday visit. Most of them scattered around the Midwest where less notable bits of history were easy to stumble upon. He hadn't mentioned wanting to stop anywhere to his wife before they left. He was afraid of what the explanation would have sounded like, having already tried a couple of variations in his head. There are some places I want to stop at before we get to Nashville. There's an important historical landmark on the way to Nashville. He had given up after that, confident that his desire to delve into the obscure parts of the country's history made sense only to him. Since arriving in America, he had tried to come up with a series of standards by which he could judge his assimilation. He gave himself points for knowing answers to certain questions, like which teams were playing football that Monday night or which television actors he would most want to sleep with and which ones he wouldn't. If while at the plant, one of his co-workers said, Hey, Yosef, who's that playing on the radio? And he responded correctly by saying Ray Charles. Then at least one, sometimes two points were added to the poorly tracked column in which these things were supposed to matter. He wanted other inroads into America, and his list of historical landmarks was his most recent one. By his reckoning, the more obscure the landmark, the better. Anyone in the world could claim to have laid eyes on the country's more famous or important monuments. There were plenty of immigrants in D.C., New York, and Boston who could see towering skyscrapers or marble monuments out their living room windows. But where did that get them? Nowhere, he thought. It meant nothing to stand in the shadows of such buildings if you didn't know the history that preceded them, and if you didn't believe that as a result of that knowledge, 
They belong to you as well. My father planned on rectifying some of that that afternoon. He had read about the Conte's fort in a small pamphlet at the immigration office in Chicago where he had declared his intentions to someday be a citizen of the United States. The pamphlet, titled A Brief History of Our Great States, concerned itself mostly with facts about Lincoln in the post-Civil War years. Only one paragraph at the beginning had mentioned the Conte and a few other early explorers, pioneers of the American wilderness it had called them, with the Conte as chief among them. This had been enough to convince him of the path he needed to seek out. Afterwards, he could say, This is very similar to an early American landmark. Or, This reminds me of an old American fort that I once visited. And anyone who heard him would be impressed and would think, Look how far he has come. He understood that he wouldn't get there all at once. It would take time and patience to become the kind of man he dreamed of. This visit to the Conte's fort was merely the start. Perhaps he wouldn't get all the way into the heart of America just yet, but surely in the end he'd feel closer to it. He'd stand in the center of one of the country's first ruined forts, and if he had to, he promised himself. He would drag his wife, kicking and screaming if need be, to bask with him in the light. While my father drove lost in his thoughts of history in Nashville, my mother was missing mountains. They had always been there, holding down all four corners of the city she had been born and raised in, neither imposing nor protective, but significant nonetheless. They weren't the type of mountains that inspired awe or wonder. Uneven, stunted, and without the requisite snow-capped peaks, they rose around the edges of the city in clusters of threes and fours, and in the morning and evening drew the clouds into them. It's baffling to realize sometimes what we miss and in fact have always loved, she thought. Whether it's a particular view of green and brown-clad mountains or a voice we assumed we had long since put to rest. They come back and find us whether we want them to or not. On that morning, my mother missed the mountains. Even though in the 28 years she had spent in Addis, she had never once deliberately considered their existence. She had never stared at them because they were simply and irrevocably there. That alone had been reason enough to believe they were always destined to be. She picked up on their absence just as the red Monte Carlo approached 65. A respectable but not reckless speed above the limit. And as she did so, she realized she had no idea or reason for being here, in this car, on this day, in this country. The entire sequence of events, as it turned out, had been a mistake. There was never supposed to be a husband she hardly knew, much less loved, or a child whose existence she had hidden for first one, and then two, and now three months. The facts of her life had crept up on her, had it asserted themselves one at a time. First a plane ticket, then a middle-aged man who had once grown slightly heavier and more diminished than she remembered, standing in an airport with a cheap bouquet of flowers. That in turn had been followed by a few nights of rough, mediocre sex with that same man pushing with an urgency born more out of desperation than love or attraction. Taken together, those facts had accumulated enough mass and force to assert themselves incontrovertibly and without doubt as the sum total of her existence. It was no different from adding up cans of peas and cartons of milk in a grocery store. Take one town, one man, one apartment, and one unborn child and add them all up together, and what do you have if not the definition of a life? 
She almost pressed her hand against the window, as if there was something on the other side of the glass that she could touch, and in doing so would save her from the irrepressible fear that she was lost and would never find herself again. That gesture, however, would have made the longing that much more difficult to bear. It was better, she believed, not to translate emotions into actions, to let them lie dormant because once they were expressed there was no drawing them back. They enter the world and having done so become greater than us. Of all the lessons I learned from my mother, this was the first. It was conducted on the steps of a brick Catholic school with two angels guarding the doorway, neither of whom had the power to comfort or protect, despite what their role suggested. I remember there was something resembling a bruise beneath her right eye that morning. The night before had been rough, although I can't say I can recall the details as to how or why. What I can say is that morning she put on a light blue dress and for an hour curled her hair so that the ends turned in towards her neck. She put on lipstick and pressed her eyebrows down and stretched her eyelashes up. And before leaving the house, she sprayed herself with the only burst of perfume she ever wore. The same one I continue to smell after all these years, regardless of where I am, because every time I think of her, I breathe her in. It was my first day of school, and taking me there was the only social outing she had in months. She treated it with all the pomp and circumstance that other women bring to more significant affairs. A dinner party here, a first date there. Since while she had these things in the past, they belonged to a different Miriam, one utterly unrecognizable from the one who stood in front of a mirror, worrying about whether or not her, neck, her neckline revealed too much for an early Monday morning. We walked the six blocks to my school together, hand in hand. And I remember thinking, and maybe I'm just saying this now because there are few children in the world who don't want to remember their mothers as being beautiful beyond imagination, that there could be nothing better in the world than this. I'd never seen my mother smile or walk that way before. She literally seemed to glow as she walked down the street, heels clicking and the inverted curls of her hair bouncing in sync her beauty rising out of her in cone-shaped beams that I'm sure would have had the power to pierce any heart they touched. It was the most memorable walk I've ever had. It wasn't until we arrived at school that her mood changed. It was almost possible at that moment to breathe in the confusion and anxiety that came with seeing herself surrounded by women as young or younger than she was, but without the bruises and uncertainty of language she carried. Those women wore jeans and t-shirts with logos advertising baseball teams and hardware stores, their hair unkempt, their lips naked. They walked their kids to the top of the steps and shook hands with the teacher and then banded together in circles that seemed almost preordained, as if their gatherings were reflections of a natural law that grouped women together by the sizes of their bodies and the color of their hair and the year and model of the cars they drove. She left me just a few feet away from the school, kneeling down on the curb behind a rusted red van so she could hide in its shadows and see me clearly as she told me the first in a series of lessons that she later referred to simply as things you must never forget. She told me dozens of such lessons throughout my childhood, each delivered with the same insistent, wide-eyed stare and stern voice that seemed to say on every occasion, you will never hear anything as important as this again even if the point she had to make concerned utterly trivial matters. The proper way to break a clove of garlic, 
the necessity of keeping your socks dry. That first lesson went like this. Jonas, I want you to remember what I say now. Are you listening? You must listen. This is important. There are things that you must not ever tell anyone. Is that correct? Must not? It's okay. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean. You are good. Say that after me. Good. No. Say, I am good. I am good. Yes, you are. And so you will listen. If someone asks you what's wrong, you say nothing. Say this. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is wrong. Good. Say it again. Nothing is wrong. Perfect. She kissed me once on both cheeks before safely crossing the street where a row of identical two-story brick houses with small front porches and unguarded front lawns stood ready to hide her. With a few quick flutters of her hands, the kind generally used to shoo away dogs, pigeons, and the empty-handed poor, she waved me up the school steps, where I stopped and stared until she disappeared around the corner because she knew that I would never leave until she was gone. A piece of dark blue fabric from the end of her dress trailed her for a fraction of a second and remained fluttering in space even after she had rounded the bend. It could have just as easily been a patch of blue stolen from the sky and delivered to earth for all the consideration I put into it. Imagined or not, that last patch of blue stayed floating in the air, and I could still see it even after she was gone, just as clearly as I could see the stop sign on the corner and the maple tree that shaded the sign and intersection. That patch of blue was no less real for not having technically been there, just as my mother was no less real for being out of sight. We persist and linger longer than we think, leaving traces of ourselves wherever we go. If you take that away, then we all simply vanish. It took the firm grasp of a teacher to pull me into the school, the bells having made their last call. I said earlier that I couldn't remember what happened to my mother the night before she took me to school, and perhaps that is true. Perhaps I can't remember neither then nor now. At the time, I did know, however, that it was easy for terrible things to happen to women when they were out of sight. They took hard hits and then later slept in your bed where you could protect them. Stop there. Um, if anybody has any questions, this is always the chance for me to make up for the somber, slightly melancholic tone for a Sunday afternoon. But I'm happy to have a conversation, answer any burning debates you want to ask. Yes? Coming from a lineage of, uh, I have no history of immigration in, in my family. so I, I always, Somewhere back there you do. <laughs> long time ago, I didn't get to experience it. So when I, when I meet somebody who has, an, uh, has that experience, I'm always interested to, to, to hear how, how the effects of um, growing up in an immigrant family, maybe... You've been back to Ethiopia as an adult, and so you have all of these different kind of cultural connections to make. And I was wondering if there is a way that it particularly informs you as, a, as an individual. Um, that's, that's a good question. Um, and it, oh, a slightly impossible question at the same time. Um, you know, I would, uh, the, sh- the shortest answer would be to say that it informs everything about me. Um, and... 
the sort of perhaps more precise question, or trying trying to find a way to respond to that, would be to say, you know, um, you do grow up between these um, different cultures and these different languages to some degree, um, and these different histories that are very distinct and and uh, sort of almost drastically opposed in some cases. And um, growing up in America, but still being born in Ethiopia, kind of allows you to have this strange slightly suspended state of identity that takes time to be fulfilled um, because you sort of grow up inside of an Ethiopian household inside of America and so you have you sort of walk through one door and you enter sort of a slightly different reality and you walk through another door and you enter a slightly different reality and so you're constantly negotiating these two terrains and these two landscapes and there's a lot of I think pressure for each one to decide exactly who you are you know there's um, sort of concentrated effort on the parts of your parents to say, well, you are Ethiopian, and then there's the other part of you that sort of steps outside and is playing baseball afternoon and has very little, absolutely no memories of this country that you're supposed to be attached to. Um, and so for me, it was very much, I think, um, I think the sort of most compelling part of that duality uh, has been carving out my own identity for myself and allowing myself to say, okay, well, I have obviously my deep attachments to my home country, Ethiopia, and of course, at the same time, I'm thoroughly American. I've been sort of raised in this country. I've been educated in this country. I write inside of a very Western American literary tradition um, that I also think of as being very broad and expansive to incorporate my sort of beliefs about Africa as well as America at the same time. Um, <laughs> see, I told you, when, I dis when he disagrees, he does not hold back. <laughs> um, and and for and for me, I think now it allows me to have a very sort of a a, a very self constructed sense of who I am. You know, um, it means that you know sometimes I have been back to Ethiopia on a couple of occasions, and I'll sort of continue to always go back there. And the first time I go back, and people are like, "Well, you're not really Ethiopian. Come on, you've been raised in America." And then you're sort of growing up in America, and people are like, "Well, you're black, but God, you really don't really talk or act like you are black because you sort of grow up in this Ethiopian household." And, and now, of course, I say, well, you have no right or power to tell me who I am and who I'm not. Um, I am Ethiopian, and I am American, and um, they're both a part of me. And I have no um, divide anymore, I think, when I think of those two places. So people will say, well, are you more Ethiopian? Are you more American? And I think, well, you're, you're the one who has kind of created this dichotomy between these two places, and you're the one who says I have to choose. I personally don't. What I'm interested in about you is... You didn't introduce um, your, your 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 lovely wife and little boy. What's their name? What's your son's name and your your wife's name? I didn't get that. Um, Anna Manuel and Gabrielle. Is she Ethiopian? She's uh, French. She's French. Okay. Um, one other thing is, I wanted to ask you. One other question I wanted to ask you is, um, you you write here in your you're a Westernized writer. Um, do you ever get a chance to get back home to Ethiopia and uh, write about your country? Do, I mean, I mean, you you really seem really American, and you've captured the American dream, from what I could see. Uh, what I'm thinking is, what you know, because I'm the kind of doctor that works with people, indigenous people, and I'm always concerned that when they come over here to America, that they don't be so Americanized that they keep their native tongue and their native language and keep it um, crisp and French, fresh to their native country and that they remain that way concerns me because it's a really biggie that, they, that you 
it's all right to be Americanized, but not lose that flavor that you have that we all here have come to like and love so much about you, about Europeans. Um, and I, so I wonder about that, you know, because you're so Americanized and your wife, your wife and your son. So I wonder, I, I'm interested in that. I, 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 I am deeply Americanized. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I have no problem with that at all either. It's, I, I grew up in America. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't or that I somehow have to uh, be opposed to being American. Um, and, and I do go back to Ethiopia and, and I go back to Africa every year, if not more, several times a year, and I write about Africa, and I write about Ethiopia, and I write about my home country, and I write about the experiences of people like me inside of America. Um, as I was saying, you know, they, they all work together for me. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to uh, posit one nation, one identity against another. To do so is going to be sort of uh, foolish and impossible. I'm not going to spend my life in opposition um, trying to uh, claim or attach myself solely to one nation or one identity. Um, I am in America. I live in France. My wife is French, which is why I'm, I'm there. We met there. Um, and when I'm in France, I've, I'm still the same person I am here. I'm not trying to become more French. So I have a friend uh, who says I'm a nation of one. <laughs> I, 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 I agree with that. Hi. You have such a distinctive voice in your novels. I can see a kind of thread between the two of them of this kind of very haunting um, tone that you use. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the authors who have influenced you and how you developed your own writing voice and style. I, I generally steal from all the authors who influence me. Um, I, some, if you look closely, you can actually find the paragraphs and the pages that were lifted wholesale. Fortunately, they're all dead. So I face no copyright infringement. Um, uh, you know, deeply influenced by V.S. Naipaul. Um, I think a little deep. You know, it sort of depends on. Sometimes you 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 kind of obviously read a lot throughout your whole life, and you grab and you choose um, these voices that become somehow uh, so deeply ingrained inside of you that it's hard to kind of parcel them out. Sometimes um, I think you know when I was writing this novel, I remember reading Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping uh, several times um, over the course of the writing of this book, and kind of felt like a novel that. Uh, match the tone of the novel that I had in my own personal head and there seemed to be a sort of, well, in my imagination, <laughs> we were having a conversation. She doesn't seem to think we are. Um, um, James Baldwin's essays, I think I oftentimes return to them a lot. Um, Edward P. Jones um, is one of my favorite writers and I've uh, um, although I, uh, I can't say that I, we, I write very differently from him, but there's a sensibility that he has towards his characters that somehow I, I think I hopefully uh, try to emulate in some cases. And then and you can start going back old school where you're like, I love Shakespeare <laughs> and Chaucer, but that, not Chaucer, really. So. Um, first, I wanted to say The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears is, I think, one of the best books I've ever read, really. Like, I always list it as among my top five, and I Thank read you. a lot, Greg can tell you. Um, but uh, one thing that really stands out to me with that, and it kind of seems like this is going to be much the same way, um, uh, was how much the the t city, like so DuPont Circle, was actually a character in that novel, I felt. Um, it was just so, the location was so much a part of the narrative. And um, it seems kind of this way as well, and I wonder if that is maybe character-driven, in that the characters are kind of seeking, and so they, they actually are trying to find their place in the world, and so 
you know, is it through their eyes that we're seeing this, or do you think place is important to you as a writer? Um, it's it's both. You know, I mean, place is is uh, very very important to me as a writer, partly because also when I construct my characters, they seem to always somehow. Ex- um, especially, with, especially with the first book, you know, the narrator could not have existed anywhere outside of Washington D.C. He was sort of his voice came to me in D.C. I began writing him in D.C. and then quickly left D.C. and never returned until I was finished with the book. Um, partly because at that point I was creating my own memories out of D.C. Um, and because I find cities such sort of you know uh, compelling places on their own, they are characters and they oftentimes deserve great scrutiny. And having a character inside of a city is a way of you know sort of doing. Uh, double work where you can both scrutinize a character and you can scrutinize a city at the same time and the city becomes character and the character becomes a reflection of the city and hopefully in that in the first novel there is a kind of pairing between the narrator's internal life and the sort of circle and the sort of small enclosed reality that he lives in and the kind of changes that happen inside of there at least in my head it sort of was um this novel is has its same sort of concern with with location and, and place but it's nowhere nearly as confined to a certain topography um it sort of spread out across um, the sort of rural stretch of the Midwest, and, um, and that was kind of because I, one of the first places I grew up in was Peoria, Illinois, and I was very much kind of fascinated by this rural Midwestern landscape my whole life, and um, I always thought it would be very great to return to it in, in my fiction, and because also I wanted to make sure that the novel uh, had a sort of deep American root inside of it, um, just in terms of kind of describing its topography. I've, there's nothing sort of more quintessentially American, I think, than that Midwestern space. Um, and I wanted the characters to sort of be inside of that space, and I wanted them to still be scrutinizing that space from the perspective of people who have just arrived from Ethiopia and are coming to America from a radically different place. Um, and they're still in the middle of America, and they're still looking at America, um, but trying to kind of understand what it means through their eyes. And then parts of the novel are also set in New York, which is... Um, yeah, it's the city I lived in. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I wanted yeah, that kind of juxtaposition between sort of you couldn't find a greater opposition, I think, than sort of, you know, Midwestern landscape to New York. Um, and kind of, you know, I sort of wanted to have it all in this book. If I was able to write a larger novel, I probably would have had parts of it in the, in the West Coast as well and, and in the South. And I would have tried to have written about every square foot of America that I could, but I was confined point of departure that I had with that last line from the New York Times review uh, in which the reviewer said that now that you've maybe gotten Ethiopia out of your, out of your blood, you could turn your attention to, to other matters. I mean, I, th- I think that's almost impossible because as artists, you, regardless of what you create, you're coming from that, that history and that story. But can you give us a little sneak peek about what you're working on next insofar as themes... Is this the um, it's well, it's probably too early to to say because it's only you know in that infant stage of, of writing and out of the next book. Um, but, but I will say you know I I did have a hard time with that with that last line because it does seem to sort of imply that um, one that I'm because I'm an immigrant that I'm somehow and if I take immigrant characters that I'm somehow writing autobiography, um, which is not the case at all. You know I'm uh, not writing autobiography any more than any other novelist is. But because people will quickly latch onto these small details that to them are exotic and foreign. They'll say, ah, well, clearly he is writing his personal story because he came from Ethiopia and you have an Ethiopian character, so therefore it's autobiography. Um, and in, in most other contexts, you would never say that was possible. You know, I mean, you wouldn't sort of like, I don't know, look at 
Toni Morrison say, well, she has black characters, therefore she's writing autobiography. Um, it's just the most easily reductive thing to do with immigrant narratives because people will see an ethnic history and backdrop, backdrop and they will say, well, clearly they are not making that up. They're taking from their dinners that they had with their parents and they're using it as fiction. And it also seems to imply that somehow that uh, that immigrant narrative is somehow um, like a genre into its own and that once you sort of milk it for all it's worth then you move on to the next thing you know um, and I find that very problematic you know I'm not if I spent you know like the next 200 years of my life writing only about the Ethiopian migration experience in America I wouldn't be anywhere near complete with it it would be vastly greater than anything I'm ever going to be able to add to it and there'll be another generation that will precede me that will take it someplace completely different there'll be other writers of the same generation as mine that will continue to add and contribute to it and collectively we will sort of add to the not the body of Ethiopian immigrant literature but the body of American literature and the Ethiopian voice will be one hopefully significant part of that or the African immigrant voice will be one significant part of that that sort of idea that somehow, you know, once it's been said, it's been said. Um, I think that kind of speaks to this fatigue that we have every time we hear the story. Well, it's an immigrant story. Uh, you know, even sort of seeing like the first responses to my work, it's always like, well, I thought I was going to read another immigrant novel. And then it's like, well, what exactly is that other immigrant novel that you thought you were going to read? I mean, what does that look like? You don't even know what it looks like, but you just are bored of it already because it seems like such a cliche already, because it's been repeated and reused and it's become tired. Um, and because we all sort of assume that that immigrant story is going to look like, you know, bad things happened in Africa. Then I came to America. Everything was great. <laughs> and that's the sort of story done. And now we can move on to the next experience, you know. Um, and I think that's always a problem that I have with that construction about saying that, you know, it's like... I hope, I hope you don't write about the Midwest again. You hope that? <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Why, why did she say that at the end? Exactly. Yeah. Like, why, why, why does he keep... Why do people keep writing about New York? I've read another, you know, I mean, how many more New York novels? How many Jewish American novels do we sort of need? But yet somehow, how many African... I mean, the, the idea of somehow these experiences being um, as, as, as if they could possibly be thoroughly mined is absurd. Hi, I know um, you do a lot of um, articles for um, newspaper or you're a journalist, but how, how do you approach your writing like between writing an article about an event versus your writing for fiction? Do you, is there an overlap or are they completely separate? Um, uh, fiction's a lot easier. You can sit down and if you, if you get stuck, you can make it up. If you don't like what somebody says, you're like, I'm going to erase that. Uh, you, you, know, you spend six hours interviewing somebody and all they've managed to tell you is, yeah, I didn't really enjoy that. <laughs> and then you, have to, you really have to struggle with, with journalism because you are confined to this very specific experiences that you have witnessed and that you've been told, and yet you still have to make them as compelling and engaging um, as any other piece of writing, fiction or nonfiction. And so the fact that you are confined to the knowable world in front of you is the hardest part of journalism. Um, fiction is sort of great. You can create and invent their characters and you have years to, to finish a novel um, most of the time somebody doesn't want to read your article that you wrote six years ago or that you you know the interview that you did in 1998 no one is waiting for it in 2008 um, novels fortunately allow that kind of space and time to grow uh, with, with, with this novel because um, I didn't start doing journalism until my first novel was published so in this novel there are um, and no one would sort of know besides me because it's from my own images and memory warehouse, but there are certain scenes and moments that took place uh, or images that I kind of brought with me from parts of Sudan um, and from other places inside of Africa that um, 
are sort of filtered their way into the novel, and that kind of um, set some of the pol- the political tone of what happens inside of Africa in the book, um, and that are also very much used in the topography. So, so they 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 overlapped in that in that case without my sort of actually ever thinking that they could or would. I I did an, I did a graduate degree in in, in writing at Columbia in New York, and so. Um, it's always one of those things where, like, I did an MFA, and people think, ah, well, you know, I can tell because I, I read a sentence, and it's clearly been the work of an MFA writer. You're like, that's just insane. Um, you know, I, you, you do a graduate degree or an MFA program in writing, um, not because someone's going to teach you how to write, but because you're going to have time to write. And that becomes the most defining part of, of graduate work in writing. Um, teaches you how to become a better reader. Teaches you how to be a critical reader. The sort of the writer, or the one of the professors who had the most influence on me, writes fiction that's radically different from my own. Um, I don't even particularly actually always enjoy his fiction, but I think he's a brilliant teacher and a brilliant professor who taught me a great deal about how to focus attention on my own sentences, how to read literature very closely, and for that I think I'm a greater, a much better writer. And that's the sort of great benefit of those programs. So. Um, I guess it's, it's less a question of genre; it's more a question of, of language. You know, I um, I have a good friend who's who's, who's a Vietnamese writer, um, raised in Australia, and sort of lived all over the world. And he's you know, and he says, "Well, I write in the English language." And if you write in the English language, it means you're sort of writing in a literary tradition in the English language. Um, it doesn't it doesn't parcel it out by ethnic genre. It doesn't mean you can't sort of completely write the Ethiopian experience, whether it is actually in Ethiopia or the diaspora experience in America in English. It just means that when you're writing in the English language, you are writing inside of a tradition of what the novel looks like and its form and shape. Um, it's, the novel is not sort of like, you know, it exists as, um, I mean, it can be toyed with and recreated in a thousand and one different ways, and it has been repeatedly over and over, but it does mean that when you're working, you're working inside of a, a sort of syntax and a kind of rhythm and a kind of uh, prose that's style that's... Uh, is sort of natural to me. If I could write in Amharic, that would be something I think completely different. Um, I I can speak French, but I actually can't write in French either. If I could write in French, I I can see the differences anyway. If I read like an essay in French, I can see the drastic differences that happen on the sentence level. That would be different if I were writing in that in that language. Um, but because I write in English, I'm writing, you know, in that. But when perhaps I should even be more specific than saying the Western tradition. I mean specifically the English language. You know, the book is in Ethiopia, um, but there's, um, you know, the sort of the structures of publishing needed to make the translation happen are are still growing. Um, and so it has not, you know, I've talked to people about the translation. Um, I've always said, you know, if somebody can get the, if they want to translate it, like I'm, they have total my permission uh, without a doubt. Um, but you know, obviously, there needs to be somebody to be able to help the translator work on this and pay for the translator's time and energy, and then to also be able to produce the book at the end of the day. And you know, I think inside of Ethiopia, that's uh, still something that's bur- like a you know, it's a burgeoning publishing industry, and it'll it'll get there. Um, as far as I know, right now, it's not there. And the conversations I've had with people have always been sort of more in the kind of theoretical, hypothetical phase. Like we'll we'll find a way to do it. Just it hasn't happened yet. Um, and my question is related to your question, too. Um, it seems like your work, I mean, it's internationally acclaimed and it transcends all boundaries of, you know, nations and ethnicities. But I was wondering, I mean, as an Ethiopian immigrant, and uh, my family came here also during the dark time, um, and it just uncannily captures that experience. So I was wondering how the Ethiopian-American community here has received your work and if you've uh, got a lot of support given it's just so unique. And, uh, how um, and you know, in general, it's always been really great. Um, 
yeah, like anything else, you always wish that there were um, sort of more. Um, not because the you know the feedback has always been lovely, but you want our community to be able to have sort of greater access to literature and books, and that's um, more a question I think of access and sort of way of literature kind of being makes making sure that it actually gets diffused out to a sort of broad enough audience, um, which is not always the easiest thing to do. It's very easy for sometimes, especially literary fiction, to kind of um, remain a little bit too isolated in kind of pockets and clusters, and so. Um, the community, every time I sort of generally do a reading, it's always great and fantastic to have the support. Um, but, you know, it would be great to see, to have better ways of reaching out more. So let's say thank you to Dino. Yeah.